Well, even though we are starting a new year, a new calendar year, we will continue the theme that we began back in September of last year. And that theme, as you know, is on the topic of the Christian mind. And certainly as we see the things take place in the culture around us, we know that this topic, this theme is of vast importance. How we think makes all the difference in how we relate to to the things that are taking place around us. How we think, even more importantly than that, makes all the difference in our walk with Christ. It all begins in the mind. And that's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 said that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is not something that just happens at the moment of conversion and it's done once and for all. This is something that marks and characterizes all of the Christian life. It is the renewal of our mind. We have been given new minds. We have been given a heart of flesh. We've been given eyes to see. The veil has been lifted. Nonetheless, there still remains for us that daily task of renewing our minds. We have looked at a lot already in this study so far since September. We've looked at the great commandment, Jesus' words in Matthew 22, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our minds. We have also looked at the impact of sin on the mind as we studied Ephesians chapter 4, 17 to 19, and looked at the noetic effects of sin. In contrast to that, we also spent one evening studying the doctrine of regeneration and looking at the noetic effect of regeneration, the impact of regeneration, that spiritual new birth, how that impacts our minds. We looked at the word truth and how the scriptures define for us truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality as God has determined it to be. And then we looked at the next topic, the topic of authority. Everything comes down to authority. On what authority, by what standard do we base our judgment of reality? What is real? What is the standard for determining that? And we looked at the concept of authority. We've also looked at the issue of doubt. What role does doubt have in impeding the transformation, the renewal of our minds? And what role does doubt have actually in spurring on a hunger for truth as we doubt ourselves, as we doubt our our own intuition and instead look to a more sure testimony, the testimony of God's word? And then the last time we met together in 2021, we looked at the topic of knowledge and its wrong use. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 to 3, and Paul's warning that knowledge that is not properly incorporated with love will lead to arrogance. Well, this evening I want to take the next step now and look at another very important topic as it relates to the Christian mind. And that is a phrase that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Verse 16, you can turn in your Bibles there because we will spend our time in this chapter this evening, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but there's an important statement at the end of a section, at the end of the chapter, in verse 16, when the Apostle Paul makes this astounding statement, he says, we have the mind of Christ. And we need to put that in the proper context. We need to study what Paul means by that because we don't even know how profound of a statement that really is. We have the mind of Christ. We want to ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, how could you make such an astonishing statement? We have the mind of Christ. Well, unquestionably, when we study the topic of the Christian mind, we have to understand what that means. We have the mind of Christ, and that's what we will do this evening. And this topic is so very, very important, because as we will see this evening, 
As we will see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, specifically from verses 6 to 16, the Apostle Paul makes some very strong assertions about the mind, some very strong assertions about wisdom that are critical for us to understand in our day and age as they have always been, whether for the Corinthians or for the church of the Reformation or for today. Paul's teaching here is crucial. It's crucial for us to understand how we have been wired as a result of regeneration, how we as believers have been wired and how that is different from the world, from those in the world, and why we cannot find common ground. That's so very important because, as I'm sure you've noticed, over the last several years in particular, we have faced a a growing cry, even from leaders within the church, that we must adapt to the culture. We have seen within the last five years in particular, massive shifts in the culture's understanding of morality and truth and ethics, understanding of marriage, understanding of of the sexes, understanding of justice and so on. Massive shifts have taken place and there is a chorus of voices from even within the church saying we must adapt. We must recognize the benefit the culture has. We must see within the culture its redeeming values and take what is good and adapt it to our own mission. Just yesterday, I watched a video clip, a very sad one, that was put out by one of the most well-known Southern Baptist churches in the United States, McLean Bible Church. And in that video clip, one of the pastors on the staff of that church which again is one of the most significant influential Southern Baptist churches within the country, made some audacious statements about Jesus, saying that Jesus himself experienced his own kind of gender dysphoria and how we need to acknowledge that, embrace that, and use that as a means for drawing people into the church. That is an example of the chorus of voices that is seeking to influence us to adapt to the culture, to embrace the things that are going on in the culture, to see their redeeming value and say, well, we can actually believe this. Well, what does the scriptures teach on the value of the culture? You know, it's one of the interesting things when you do a survey of some of the men's ministries across the country, even within evangelical churches, you find some very strange tendencies As I've done some of my own investigation, it's not unusual to find how men's ministries will build themselves around the current cultural things that are happening and have movie nights where they'll show the latest blockbuster and then have some kind of competition in order to see the redeeming value of the movie. So take Spider-Man, the the newest release on Spider-Man, and try to find the trinity in in Spider-Man. Try to find the message of redemption in Spider-Man or in Star Wars or what have you. And there is this assumption that the culture has something to teach us as Christians in order for us to fulfill our ministry, our mission. The culture has something to contribute to us so that we can fulfill the great commission that Christ has left us with. Is that really what the Scriptures teach? And I would say that the answer is no, and as we will see, the Apostle Paul very definitively says the answer is no. Carl Truman, in responding to this kind of cultural appeasement and imitation, wrote this in a book entitled The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. He said this, If the church as a whole is losing its ability to be salt and light in the culture, it is not because its members have no opinion of the films of Bernardo Bertolucci, no appreciation for the poetry of Emily Dickinson, and no regular slot on the Charlie Rose show. More likely, it is because they do not have a solid grasp of the basic elements of the faith, 
as taught in the Scripture and affirmed by the confessions and catechisms of the church. Indeed, the calls for us to appease the culture, embrace the culture, imitate the culture, come from this kind of ignorance of what the Scriptures actually teach and what they teach about the Christian mind and truth. Well, we want to make sure that we're not in that fallacy, and so we will turn our attention this evening to this important text in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and as you turn there, I want to give you a little bit of an overview before we dive into Paul's words in verses 16 to 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Actually, a very important section in Paul's argument here in, in 1 Corinthians begins in chapter 1 verse 18, and it extends all the way to chapter 2 verse 5. 1 verse 18 to 2 verse 5. And there, as you would read, you'd find that Paul emphasizes the simplicity of the gospel. In fact, the gospel is so simple that for the Gentiles, it's foolishness, and for the Jews, it's a stumbling block. It doesn't measure up to the great philosophical standards of the Greek philosophers. It doesn't measure up to the great religious, legalistic, ritualistic standards of Judaism. And so it is rejected. And Paul instead says, no, this is the true gospel. It is simple. It is simple. In fact, he introduces that in chapter 1, verse 17, when he talks about his mission not being there to baptize, but instead to preach. And then he says this in verse 17 of chapter 1, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. He then ends that particular section in chapter 2, verse 5, and he explains why the gospel is so simple, why it isn't based on on some kind of effort on the part of man, some kind of endeavor or achievement, some kind of special learning that man could pat himself on the back over. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 5, this is why it's so simple, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The gospel is simple. Simple truth, and it's the same simple truth for the child as it is for the Ph.D. doctor. It is simple. But before we go too far on that, Paul wants here in the letter to introduce a qualification to that. And this is what he does in chapter 2, verses 6 to 16, the section that we will study this evening. Paul qualifies his assertion that the gospel is simple truth, what he calls wisdom, He qualifies that by saying, though the gospel truth, though the wisdom of God is simple, it is not natural. It is not empirical. It is not intuitive. Though it is simple, it is not something that man himself cooks up on his own. In fact, man cannot contribute to it at all. Paul wants to make this very important qualification so that we don't misunderstand the nature of of wisdom. We don't understand the nature of gospel truth. We don't misunderstand the the nature of, of divine revelation. It is simple, but it is not natural to us. It is simple, but it is not empirical. It is simple, but it is not something that arises from within our own hearts. And this qualification that Paul makes is so important because it helps us maintain the proper distinction that must be there as we think about the Christian and his mind and his thinking and the thinking of the natural man, the unbeliever in the world, and why there is no common ground. Now, when Paul begins this section in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he begins with a summary statement. We need to start here with the summary statement. It's the first half of verse 6. So if you look in your Bibles, you can see this summary statement, and it really contains the outline for the rest of the section, all the way to the end of the chapter, all the way to the end of verse 16. Paul says this, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Now, actually, more literally, 
the word order is this. Yet wisdom we do speak among those who are mature. Now, there are three elements in this statement, and this is what will serve as our outline for this evening. Notice, first of all, that Paul mentions wisdom. It's not the first time he's mentioned it in the book, but we will define it. And in particular, we'll look at the nature of this wisdom that Paul is discussing. Secondly, he says, yet wisdom we do speak. There is a communication involved in this. And so we must look at this second element, which is the disclosure, the revelation of this wisdom. And then third, he includes this third element among those who are mature. Paul says there is a particular audience, a target. There is a group of those who are receptive to this, and everyone outside of that group are not. And he calls them the mature, and that will serve as the third of our three-part outline for this evening. The nature, the disclosure, or the appreciation. Or, let me summarize our study with these three points. Number one, the supreme, or, or the supernatural, the supernatural nature of true wisdom. We're going to see that in verse 6b, all the way through to the end of verse 9. We'll see the extraordinary disclosure of true wisdom, and we'll see that in verses 10 to 13, and then we'll see the exclusive appreciation of true wisdom in verses 14, 15, and 16. Let me read this text with you. In verses 6 to 9, Paul writes this, A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. And then the second section is in verses 10 to 13. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And in the final section... Verses 14 to 16 read as follows. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of of Christ. Let's look at the first section, the supernatural nature of true wisdom. The supernatural nature of true wisdom. And that raises the question, especially when we read that statement right at the beginning of verse 6, where he says, we do speak wisdom, or wisdom we do speak. What is this wisdom? What is this wisdom? Our definitions are so important. Well, Paul speaks of wisdom in different ways in the letter to the Corinthians. In fact, he uses this word, wisdom, frequently, which emphasizes to us the fact that this was a a term, a concept that was very important within the context of that Corinthian church as they struggled with the culture around them and what the culture was was doing to influence them. There was a struggle over the concept of wisdom, and Paul uses this term, therefore, throughout his letter, in, in, in intensity especially within these early chapters, 
And Paul uses it in different ways. Sometimes he will talk about human wisdom. And he uses wisdom in that sense in a negative connotation. It doesn't describe something which is pleasing to God. It describes the traditions of men, the philosophies of men, the religious systems of men. That's the wisdom of this world. That's the wisdom of man. And it is not a God-pleasing wisdom. But Paul also uses the term wisdom in a positive way. In fact, he uses it in two different ways. Sometimes when he uses the term wisdom, he uses it simply to refer to the saving gospel that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died as a propitiation for sins, and that he was raised again for our justification. A very simple gospel message. And sometimes when Paul uses the term wisdom, he's referring to that simple gospel message. But in other places, Paul uses wisdom in a good sense to refer to something that is broader than merely the gospel message. And this is how Paul uses it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. The wisdom here speaks of the full scope of God's teaching on salvation and the Christian life. It speaks of the full scope. It's, it, you could look at it this way. Wisdom is God's redemption applied to everyday life. Wisdom is God's redemption applied to every corner of life, every aspect of life, every category of life. It's much broader than than the gospel message as a strict message of, of how men and women can be saved. It's broader. It speaks of implications. It speaks of consequences. And that's how Paul is using the term here. Wisdom, in fact, as Paul has said already in chapter 1, wisdom, he even says, is Christ. He says in chapter 1, verse 30, that Christ has become to us wisdom. And if we could look at at Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, we read that Paul elsewhere says, that in Christ all the treasures of of knowledge and wisdom are found. It's all of the special revelation that God has determined to make known to his creatures. That's wisdom, and that is how Paul is using the term here. In fact, as we get to the end of verse 16, as we wrap up this section, Paul is going to make the statement that we have the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ, and that is wisdom. That is true wisdom. So Paul says, wisdom we do speak, but he gives us further characteristics on this. Now look at your text. I want, to, I want to take you through here six characteristics of wisdom. Six characteristics of this kind of wisdom. And again, this is important for us so that we can understand the great distinction that exists between our thinking and the thinking of this world. Notice, first of all, Paul says that this is a wisdom that is not of this world. Notice what he says in the second half of verse 6 as he begins to define it. He says, a wisdom, however, and there's a strong contrast here, a wisdom, however, not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. The word age here refers to the whole system of this world under the corruption of sin. The word age refers to the current system, the current world structure. That's the meaning of that concept of age. The age in which we live, an age that is marked by sin, that is marked by curse, that is marked by corruption, that is marked by rebellion. That's this present age. Paul says wisdom doesn't come from that. And he says wisdom doesn't come either from the rulers of this age, those who stand as as the, the cream of the crop, the elite, those who are the movers and shakers, those who are the intellectuals and the philosophers, those who are the social scientists, the civic leaders, the pundits, the commentators, the intellectuals, the corporate executives, The rulers of this world are also, Paul says, not the source of this wisdom. He says it categorically. In fact, you can take this term, the rulers of this age, also to refer to demonic powers, as Paul uses that 
terminology elsewhere. That even from the demonic world, you cannot find wisdom. It's not there. This wisdom which Paul preaches is a wisdom that is not of this world. And that is so very important for us because it is so easy for us to look upon this world with admiration. We see the ivory tower schools, the ivy league schools, the great corporations, the great empires. And it is easy for us to sit there in admiration. Paul says true wisdom does not originate there. Secondly, he says, this is a wisdom that belongs solely to God. Notice what he says in verse 7a. Again, another strong contrast. In contrast to the rulers of this world and their lack of wisdom, Paul says, but we speak God's wisdom. A wisdom that belongs to God. A wisdom that is his. It's his possession. It is for him to do what he wants with it. It is his. Third, we see also in verse 7, look at verse 7, not only is it a wisdom that belongs to God, but it is a wisdom that cannot be discovered through human effort. Notice what Paul calls this wisdom. He says it this way. He says it is a wisdom in a, in, 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 in a mystery. It is a, a wisdom that is a hidden wisdom. And what Paul means by that in his use of the term mystery is this. This is a wisdom that cannot be accessed apart from God. There's no human insight into this. There's no secret path. There's no secret key. There's no secret education. There's no secret learning. It is completely impenetrable, inaccessible to man apart from God. It's his, and no man will ever see it on his own. No man will ever experience it. No man will ever discover it. It is a mystery and is not discovered through human effort. But Paul goes on and he says this, it is a wisdom that God determined in eternity past and for eternity future. Notice what he says in the second part of verse 7. He says, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages and to our glory. This is a wisdom that isn't perchance. This is a wisdom that is not a plan B. This is a wisdom that, that didn't originate because God had to create an exit strategy. This is a wisdom that was determined by him, decreed by him, even before the start of time. But not only that, it is a wisdom that will exist long after. Paul says it is for our glory, and that is a reference to our eternal future. It is a wisdom that will forever enamor the redeemed as we in eternity future will worship the Lord for this wisdom. Fifth, it is a wisdom that the elite of this age have not accepted. He says again in verse 8, the wisdom which none, not one, not a single solitary ruler of this age has understood it. And that word for understood is not merely just some cognitive awareness. It refers to actual acceptance, a welcoming. And Paul says very clearly that there has not been one ruler in the history of mankind, who has accepted this wisdom, who has received it, who has welcomed it. You throw the very best of humanity in this direction, and you can be sure not one of them will accept it. Not one. That is this kind of wisdom. In fact, he goes on to say here in verse 8, that if you doubted, this statement, just look at the fact that there was not one human leader who stood up for Jesus at his trial. Paul says at the end of verse 8, for if they had understood, if they had welcomed it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now understand this, in the history of humanity, up until the time of the, the Roman Empire, there was never an empire so powerful and vast, strong and wise in man's eyes as the Roman Empire. But even their elite, even the best, would not stand up for the Lord of glory. 
and instead joined with the chorus and called for his crucifixion. There's another qualification here and another characteristic of this wisdom. It is a wisdom, number six, that is not generated by empiricism, human tradition, or intuition. Notice verse 9. Paul writes this as as he quotes from this Old Testament text. He, He says this, But just as it is written... This is Isaiah 64, verse 4, a loose paraphrase of it. Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Notice this, he says, eye has not seen this wisdom. That speaks of empiricism, the senses, observation. There is not a single solitary human eye that has ever looked upon this wisdom in its own natural state and appreciated its beauty. And then he says, and no ear has heard. That is a reference to tradition, the traditions of of men as they are passed on from, from, from one generation to the next. There's not one ear that has ever heard anything that it would claim to be positive about this truth, this wisdom. And of course, it refers also to intuition. Nothing has entered into the heart of man. This wisdom has nothing to do with human empiricism, science. It has nothing to do with traditions. It has nothing to do with your feelings. This is a completely otherworldly kind of wisdom that exists whether we do or don't, that exists whether we accept it or not. It has no dependency upon us It's God's wisdom. And therefore, as we reflect upon this important realization of this supernatural nature of this this wisdom, we need to understand that the world, we need to understand that our fundamental problems, we need to understand that the solution to these things can only be found in turning to God. The, the way to solve these things, the, the way to understand these things appropriately and, and have the right response will only come through a God-centered perspective where he is the beginning point, where he is the fountain, where he is the foundation, where he is the beginning. Apart from that conscious acceptance, there will be no proper understanding of the world There will be no proper understanding of our fundamental problems, and there will never be any true understanding of their solutions. Only through God will these things be understood. Only. Let's now look at the second reality that Paul introduces for us here as he qualifies the nature of this wisdom, the extraordinary disclosure of true wisdom. Verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. The extraordinary disclosure of this wisdom. Now, that again brings us back to the summary statement in verse 6. Go back to verse 6 again and notice that first half of the verse. Paul says, yet wisdom we do speak among those who are mature. Well, what does, how, how can human speaking communicate or convey this wisdom. Think about it. If if this wisdom does not originate with man, if this wisdom is not found in in our intuition, in our hearts, in our senses, if this is a wisdom that we cannot discover, then how can somebody possibly communicate that which is completely otherworldly? God is wholly other. In fact, that statement wholly emphasizes that he is completely separate and distinct from us. And if that's who he is, then that is his wisdom, also completely distinct from us. Well, how in the world, Paul, can you say that you can speak this wisdom? This wisdom we do speak. 
Well, Paul now is going to explain that for us in verses 10 to 13. He's going to explain how this inaccessible mystery, this inaccessible knowledge has now been made known. It's been opened up. It's been disclosed. And Paul is going to give us four assertions about the disclosure of this wisdom. And again, this is so very important for us to understand as we think about the world around us. Number one, he says that God has acted according to his own sovereign will to make this wisdom known. God has acted according to his own sovereign will to make this wisdom known. We did not twist God's arm. There is nothing outside of himself to force him, to compel him to do this. There was no pressing external need that obligated God to reveal this wisdom. Not at all. In fact, Paul makes it very clear. When we talk about the revelation of God, the disclosure of this wisdom, God has made it of his own sovereign, independent will. Notice verse 10. For to us, God revealed them, the deep things, his wisdom. God revealed them. Number two, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is the special agent, the designated agent of this communication, of this revelation. So God has determined to make it known to us out of his free will, out of his sovereignty, out of his benevolence. He is compelled only by what is in himself and not by what is outside of himself. And so he reveals it. Well, how does he do that more specifically? And Paul says it comes by the agency of the Spirit. Notice verse 10 as we continue. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Now understand this. If wisdom is inaccessible, if wisdom is, it originates within the depths of God's essence, then obviously to make this wisdom known to mere creatures like us, you need to have an agent who knows the deep things of God. And that's exactly what Paul says about the Holy Spirit. For it is the Spirit who searches and knows all things, even the depths of God. He is the member of the triune Godhead that is particularly tasked with the ministry of revelation. You could look at a, a text like 2 Peter chapter 1, 20-21, where we have described for us that it's the Holy Spirit who moved men along to speak from God. He is the agent of this revelation. And in verse 11, we read this, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. No one outside of God knows what God is thinking unless God himself determines to reveal that and it is specifically the Holy Spirit who does. That's his ministry. Number three, the third assertion here. The apostles are the particular recipients of this revelation. The apostles are the particular recipients of this revelation. Now, what's interesting to note in in this section, beginning in verse 6 all the way to verse 16, Paul uses a lot of first-person plural pronouns. We, we, us, we, us, we. Verse 6, verse 7, verse 10, verse 12, verse 13, verse 16. Paul over and over again keeps saying, we, us, we, us. Well, who is he referring to? Now, some would take this to be referring to all Christians, and that's not the accurate understanding of those pronouns in this particular context. What Paul is doing when he's referring to those contexts is he is referring, uh, referring to those pronouns as he is referring to the apostles, to the biblical writers, to those who recorded the words, to those who are the recipients of that special revelation, those men who are moved by the Spirit to speak from God. 
Paul says in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, for to us, God revealed them. And that is important. And even though Paul is distinguishing himself from the church as a whole and limiting this this revelatory activity to a small group of men, he is also emphasizing this. Listen, God has not revealed these things through the philosophers of this world. God has not revealed these things through the other religions. You you can't find the divine spark in those things. You you can't find words of, of truth in those things that can be valued and appreciated and followed and revered. No, Paul says to a very specific audience, to us, to us, God revealed them. Verse 12, he says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Number four, the resulting product of the Spirit's work in these apostles, in these biblical writers, is a message that is accurate and trustworthy to the very word. Accurate and trustworthy to the very word. Notice verse 13, Paul says this, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. That is a very important statement. Now notice, first of all, that Paul emphasizes the word taught. It comes twice in this sentence. It's not taught by human wisdom. We're all familiar with that. You go to a school, you sit at the feet of a a rabbi, a teacher, and that teacher teaches you. That's That's the manner of human wisdom, learning human wisdom. But Paul uses that same word, that same verb to teach, and he uses it here to speak of what the Spirit has done through the biblical writers. And this is very important. Why? Because Paul describes in that word the special providential activity of the Spirit in forming and shaping and fashioning those biblical writers. They didn't write as robots. They didn't switch off their minds and then just have their their hand just automatically move along the page. No, Paul says they were taught by the Spirit. That condescension of God, that benevolent condescension that went so far so as to providentially develop those biblical writers so that what they wrote was exactly what God wanted written. In fact, that comes out in this very last statement, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Taking the substance of wisdom. Taking the deep things of God taking the mind, the noose of Christ, taking that substance and putting it in the right form of human language. That is what the biblical text is. God has effectively and flawlessly revealed the wisdom we need. The wisdom we need to understand this world. The wisdom we need to understand the the, the the needs of this world, the wisdom that we need to understand the solutions to these problems, God has delivered that. And he has delivered it to such an effective extent that it's perfect. It's not given to error. It doesn't miss the point. It doesn't become antiquated. It doesn't fail to be relevant. It doesn't need to be updated. It is the perfect wisdom of God, the substance of those deep things put in the form of human language. One commentator said this, the apostle Paul clothed his spirit-revealed truths in spirit-taught language and thereby combined 
what was spiritual in substance with what was spiritual in form. And as a result, because we have that in the biblical text, we can do as Thomas Watson said we are to do, that great Puritan theologian, he said this, think in every line you read that God is speaking to you. In every line, in every word. The substance of the indiscrutable, inscrutable, indescribable, unfathomable, deep things of God have been revealed, have been made known. They're there on the page. So that every time your eye comes across a word, a phrase, a sentence, a paragraph, God is speaking. You don't need to go elsewhere. You don't need to listen to voices somewhere else. You don't need to pray for visions and dreams. It is here where God is revealing the deep things of his wisdom. And he has done so with efficacy and perfection. B.B. Warfield also said this, the Bible is the word of God in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And that is so important because we have a tendency to view the Bible as a mundane book. We have a tendency to view the Bible as human wisdom. We have a tendency to look at it as something that is average, right up there on the shelf along some of the other great classics or some of those other favorite authors. The Bible can never be compared with the works of human wisdom. This is God speaking to you. Number three, the exclusive application of true wisdom. In verses 14 to 16, the exclusive appreciation of true wisdom. The exclusive appreciation of true wisdom, then the next question, the last one that is raised is this, who then are the mature who can accept this? Go back again to to, to verse 6. Yet wisdom we do speak among those who are mature. Wisdom we do speak. Well, who are those who are mature, who receive it, who welcome it, who appreciate it? And again, we can look at this and find several descriptions of these mature. Number one, They are not natural men. They are not natural men. Verse 14 makes a very definitive statement. Paul says this, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. Paul talks here about the natural man. Who is this natural man? The natural man is the unbelieving man. The man who has not been made alive by the Spirit. Go back, for example, to chapter 1, verse 18. Here we have the distinction between the natural man and the mature. The natural man and the spiritual man. 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. You have two categories of men very clearly delineated. There's no middle ground. There's no third category of an elite Christian. There are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And those who are perishing are described here in verse 14 as natural men. Now notice what he says about these natural men. He makes two assertions about them, and this is in your notes, and I just quickly draw your attention to it. Paul makes an assertion, an explanation, and an emphasis. He says this, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? They are foolishness to him. Now, what does Paul emphasize there in the first half of verse 14? He emphasizes the unbeliever's active rejection. The natural man hears the gospel. The natural man hears the word of scripture. And he dismisses them as unserious. There are better things in this world. In fact, they're foolish. 
And you could probably all testify to this, that there was a time in your life where you, sought, where you thought that very same thing. Someone would turn on the, a sermon or give you a tract or give you the Bible to read, and you opened it and thought, this is gobbledygook. That's the natural man. He understands just enough to reject it, to pronounce a judgment and to call it foolish. But Paul also says that the natural man cannot even understand. He cannot even understand. Why? Because the word of God, the deep things of God that have been revealed are spiritually appraised. You need to have the assistance of the Holy Spirit. They are spiritually appraised. And what does that emphasize? It emphasizes the unbeliever's natural disability. They have an intellectual barrier, an intellectual inability. They have a heart of stone. Their ears are covered. Their eyes are covered. They're blind and deaf. That is the unbeliever, according to 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Take this, for example, from Mark Twain, you know, from the horse's mouth, who said this, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It is the parts that I do understand. That statement there reflects what unbelievers say. You know, they have enough to to read about the resurrection and the virgin birth, the, the, the atonement of Christ, the substitutionary sacrifice, the, the wrath of God, the love of God, the justice of God, the nature of sin, the creation of the world, the end of the world. And they know just enough to say, I know enough so that that bothers me. That bothers me. John Calvin summarized this when he said this, faced with God's revelation, the unbeliever is like a donkey at a concert. It's actually translated a little bit differently, the word for donkey, but I'm not going to put that on the screen. But it is an apropos description of the unbeliever. He's like a donkey at a concert. What, what appreciation does a donkey have for Beethoven or Bach? None. And that's the unbeliever. Number two, the mature are spiritual men, men who have been enlivened by the same Spirit who is responsible for revealing this wisdom. Look at verse 14. The things of the Spirit of God are spiritually appraised. Verse 15, he who is spiritual appraises all things. You could look back at 2 verse 19. This is a description as, or 2 verse 9. This is a description as well of the, 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 the mature ones. They are those who love him. Look at the end of verse 9. What God has revealed to those who love him. Those are the mature. Those are the spiritual men. Those are those who have been made alive. Who have come to know God and love him. Verse 18 is those of us who are being saved. Those who have been given the heart of flesh. Number three, the mature are those who have been given the grace to receive, understand, and appreciate this this inscrutable wisdom of God. Verse 16, notice the question that, that Paul ends with here. He gives us a rhetorical question taken from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? Think about that. Which man among you, which man among all of humanity has ever on his own accord known the mind of God so that he can tell God something? I know that's what we like to think we can do. But there's not one who can tell God a thing. None. The answer is zilch. No one has known the mind of the Lord to instruct him. But then, in immediate response to that, Paul says this, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Man's own. He knows not God. He can tell God nothing. He has no ability to instruct. 
He has no ability to have any certainty whatsoever. He, man knows nothing. And then Paul immediately contrasts that with the apostles and by extension with us who receive the apostles' writings, the revelation that has come through them as instruments by the agency of the Spirit. And Paul makes this astounding statement. Even though you cannot know the mind of Christ, you cannot know the mind of the Lord. You know what? We do have it. We have it. It has been made known. It is right here. You can know the mind of God, at least to the extent that he has revealed that. You can know it. That's what Paul is saying here. Through the biblical writers and the Spirit's work of regeneration, the mind of Christ, the mind of the Lord has been given to us. It has been put within our hands. What else would we want? What other kind of wisdom is there that we would seek? What would we long for more than this? And yet we're like those children that C.S. Lewis describes. We'd sooner just play in a mud puddle called the culture and bypass the beauties of the ocean and its beaches. Anytime, anytime when someone tells you, you know, we have to understand the culture and we have to take the redeeming values of the culture. We have to learn from the culture. We have to adapt to the culture. We have to imitate the culture. Understand they're wanting to play in a mud pit. We have the mind of Christ. It's not in the culture. We have the mind of Christ. It's right here. It's this word. Now, in response, several applications here. Number one, as we conclude, recognize your unique ability and possession. If you are in Christ, you have the mind of Christ in that you have the Spirit and the Spirit's product, this Word. Appreciate what you have been given. Appreciate what you have as one who has been made spiritual to understand this wisdom of God, to to receive it, to grow in it. You have what you need to understand the world around you. You have what you need to understand your own problems and needs. You have what you need to understand the solution, and it is right here. Appreciate that. Recognize your status, your possession, your inheritance. As a believer, not only have you been made alive from your spiritual deadness, Not only have you been given the capacity to understand the things of God, but you've also been given those very things in this word, the words of Scripture. This is, as Francis Schaeffer would say, this is true truth. It's found nowhere else. Stop looking elsewhere and value. Esteem, cherish what you've been given. Number two, Mortify your infatuation with this present world. You could read 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Speaks very clearly about how we are not to love this world, nor the things of this world. Very clear. This world is not our home. We are pilgrims. We are aliens and strangers. There is nothing in the culture that says, I want this more than I want heaven. I want this more than I want the things of God. Nothing. And if there is, you've got an infatuation that you need to kill. The great edifices of this culture, the great ivory towers of learning, the great achievements of history, great political movements, whatever is there, you must realize it is, it is from the natural man. Now, certainly, we do have the general grace of God that we can be thankful for in this world. And we are thankful for the general goodness of God in things like democracy in a free country. We must realize this is, this is not the real deal. This is not where our trust goes. Spurgeon said it this way, the Christian is the most contented man in the world, but he is the least contented with the world. 
He is like a traveler in an inn, perfectly satisfied with the inn and its accommodation, considering it as an inn, but putting quite out of all consideration the idea of making it his home. By the way, be careful about even the esteem that you give to the conservative pundits of this culture. Certainly, we see the, the, the freedoms and the blessings attacked on unprecedented scale in the world around us. The general grace of God that has led this nation to where it is today, it's, it's, it's being undermined unquestionably. And certainly we can take some solace in the fact that there are some natural men out there who are conservative commentators or conservative politicians, but we must understand that's not where our hope is. We can't fall into the trap of thinking that they have wisdom from God. In fact, let's remember this. They should know better. And they don't. They should kneel before the Lord of this universe. They don't. And they would have been the same ones to crucify Christ as Pilate and the religious leaders of Israel. Those conservative pundits of today who do not bow the knee to Christ. Remember Remember that. A while back, James Lindsay, for example, became somewhat of a, a darling for certain evangelicals. Why? Because he so, so strongly critiqued CRT, critical race theory, and evangelicals liked him because he would provide good arguments. James Lindsay? He is a crude atheist. What fellowship is there of light with darkness? He hates my Lord. He would have crucified him if he could have. He would have driven the nails in the hand. And I'm going to partner with him? No. The natural man understand not the things of the Spirit. Number three, cultivate a worldview which is consistent with your identity. The truths of 1 Corinthians 2 have immediate implication for how you view what is going on in the world today. And those truths don't just apply to salvation in a basic sense. It applies to everything, every way that we look at our lives in the world. Take 1 Corinthians 2.14 and, and, and meditate on that and realize just how different that makes you from your neighbor and from this culture around us. Convictions on truth and morality, ethics, justice, beauty, goodness are all derivative. They develop. They develop from the consequences of possessing the mind of Christ. And so therefore, our understanding must always be exceptional. Our worldview must always be exceptional. It must always be distinct. It cannot synthesize and incorporate elements from this world. Number four, stop nuancing the message. Stop nuancing the message. There are evangelicals today calling themselves Bible-believing Christians, but like that pastor of McLean Bible Church, they're tripping all over themselves to accommodate the message, to nuance it, to say, well, the Bible isn't black and white. Well, 1 Corinthians 2 is very black and white. The natural man does not understand, but we have the mind of Christ. That means when we go out into the world, do not feel that pressure to nuance the gospel message, to nuance the Bible. It is a line, it will take care of itself. Preach it as it is. Have no fear, be courageous, speak it, do not hide the truth, but speak the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Do not nuance. Finally, prepare for the ridicule. If we really believe in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16, and we really live it out. We must understand that we're not going to be affirmed by this world. We're not going to be applauded. They're never going to call us brilliant. They're never going to say that we are deep thinkers. In fact, they will not even remain ambivalent. They will attack. And that is precisely the point that Paul makes in this broader context. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
You could go on and read verses 27 to 28 and so on and understand this, that this message, that wisdom of God, the deep things of God, that he has revealed by his spirit through the apostles, they are an object of derision. And because we proclaim them to the world, apart from those whom the Lord finds as objects of his mercy, apart from those, we will be ridiculed and mocked and treated as the scum of the earth. Embrace it. You'll be in good company. That's what this text teaches. That's what it challenges us as it relates to the Christian mind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you that the things hidden have been made manifest. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who has taken these truths and through the select instruments, the biblical writers, has revealed your very mind. And that revelation, that wisdom, gives us the framework in which to understand everything that is going on in the world. Understand the foundational reasons and the foundational solutions. Make us courageous and bold in their proclamation. And at the same time, Father, humble us. As we sang earlier, the words of Isaac Watts, we do ask ourselves the question that as we reflect upon our conversion, each one of us asks, Lord, why was I made to be a guest around your table? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there was still room when thousands around us still make that wretched choice and rather starve than come. Humble us with that reality. We are indeed the scum of the earth. You have desired to pour upon us your mercy, your grace. And the most unworthy you have fitted to be the recipients of your deep things. We will forever be grateful. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.